So once again, the term advent, of course, has a meaning that is non-theological, but at the same time, there is a theological sense that uh, we are waiting for the Lord to come. And of course, uh, for us, that is waiting for the second coming of Christ. And so in churches all over the world this time of year, there is the season of Advent and candles will be lit and uh, services will be crafted around uh, preparing our hearts for Christmas Day. But I want us to uh, very clearly keep in mind and I want us to approach Advent with the view of the second coming of Jesus Christ. Because I think that uh, we very clearly are in this period known as the Second Advent. And I do think that there are lessons that can be learned from the First Advent for those of us, us, who are living in the Second Advent period. And so, in the four Sundays leading up to this Christmas, I'm going to be asking us, to take lessons from the first advent um, so that they would encourage us and inspire us and strengthen us as we wait for the coming Christ. So have you ever been given or given someone the silent treatment? We've all done it, right? It's a... Very effective strategy. Uh, Some would call it a passive-aggressive strategy for showing displeasure, for getting someone's attention. In a very real sense, God gave the people of Israel the silent treatment for over 400 years. In what we now called the intertestamental period. That period between when God spoke to the people of Israel through the patriarchs and the prophets and the kings in the Old Testament and the period in which God spoke to us through Jesus Christ and through the apostles. The New Testament. And so we are living in this period in which we have the benefit of both the Old and the New Testament, but there's this gap that exists. We call it the silent years. 400 plus years when Christ or God did not speak to Israel. Why did God not speak to Israel for 400 years? Well, as I've said, why do we use the silent treatment? To show displeasure and to get attention. I don't know if you've been on the end of the silent treatment, but you sure do get the message, don't you? And I think clearly some people definitely got the message when the intertestamental period ended. So for 400 years, God chose not to speak to Israel. 
to show his displeasure, and to get Israel's attention. And then, just as the Apostle Paul writes to the Romans, at just the right time, God broke his silence. And this is the story that we kind of just run through every year, habitually because we love it so much. When the angels approached people and God's silence was ended after 400 plus years of silence, the angels came to Mary and Joseph and Zechariah and Elizabeth. The angels came to the shepherds and the silence was broken. God was speaking. I think we need to know why God was silent for 450 years. Why was God showing his displeasure? Why was God trying to get people's attention? Well, the best place to look is the book of Malachi. Malachi is the last of the Old Testament prophets. And if you look in your Bible, He's the last book of the Old Testament. And the very last words of God are there before 400 plus years of silence. So in order to get the context of Malachi, it's important that we kind of understand um, the situation in Israel. So here's your little brief history lesson. Um, As we know, God created a great nation known as Israel uh, through the family of Abraham. Uh, We know that they were delivered from Egypt. We know that they went into the land of promise. But we also know that they were wont to rebel against God and to be disobedient. And so really bad things happened to them. The nation was divided in two. There was the southern kingdom, and there was the northern kingdom. In about 720 B.C., before Christ, the northern kingdom was conquered, and those Israelites were essentially dispersed and really not really heard from again. They were dispersed and really never came back together. They were assimilated into the culture. Then the southern kingdom rebelled, and God allowed the Babylonians to come and to take over um, the southern kingdom. And they took those Israelites, the brightest and the best, I would say, off to Babylon, where they were in in captivity for 70 years. This was all God's doing. (laughs) This was all God calling on His people to know that there are consequences for disobedience. There are consequences. That if they would only obey, they would prosper. Eventually, God moved the heart of a pagan king, Cyrus, to allow the Israelites to return to Jerusalem. And Jerusalem was rebuilt after being devastated in the conquering. And the temple was rebuilt. And there was sort of a period of revival going on in Israel. You remember the names of Ezra and Nehemiah. And there was, as I said, sort of a returning to the law, returning to God. But, once again, 
as they were wont to do. And I, I, I'm not pointing the figure at Israel because I'm no different. <laughs> as I am wont to do, as you are wont to do, we disobey. <laughs> we rebel. We don't put up with the lordship of God for too long before we start to stray. But Israel, it's all in the book, once again rebelled. And Malachi was the last prophet to speak to them. Now, what were they doing in the time that they uh, were in rebellion? And what was Malachi used of God to confront the Israelites with? Well, <laughs> this is where this idea of taking the lessons of the first advent can be instructive and helpful for those of us living in the second period of advent. See if any of this seems familiar to you. First of all, they didn't honor God. We read, A son honors his father, and a slave his master. This is in Malachi. If I am a father, where is the honor due me? If I am a master, where is the respect due me, says the Lord Almighty. So they weren't honoring God. Secondly, they were supposed to engage in a worship that showed respect and honor for God. And so part of the sacrificial system was bringing animals that were perfect, without flaw, the firstborn. The animals that were of the greatest value. But what did they get into the habit of doing? When you bring injured, lame, and diseased animals and offer them as sacrifices, should I accept them from your hands, says the Lord? They turned from the truth and they started to listen to lies and accept lies. We read from Malachi, For the lips of the priest ought to preserve knowledge, because he is the messenger of the Lord Almighty, and people seek instruction from his mouth. But you have turned from the way, and, from the way, and by your teaching have caused many to stumble. They assimilated with the nations around them, and the nations around them had religious practices that were deplorable to God. It says, Judah, Malachi writes, Judah has been unfaithful. A detestable thing has been committed in Israel and in Jerusalem. Judah has desecrated the sanctuary of the Lord. Uh, loves by many, sorry, the sanctuary the Lord loves by marrying women who worship a foreign God. They disregarded the sanctity of some of the institutions that God had established for them. One being marriage. The man who hates and divorces his wife, says the Lord, the God of Israel, does violence to the one who should, he should protect, says the Lord Almighty. And then they did things like exploiting the weak and the marginalized and the needy. So I will come to put you on trial, God says through Malachi. I'll be quick to testify against sorcerers, adulterers, and perjurers, against those who defraud laborers of their wages, who oppress the widows and the fatherless, and deprive the foreigners among you of justice. But do not fear me, says the Lord Almighty. They were shortchanging God in tithes and offering. You're under a curse, your whole nation because you're robbing me, God says. 
They engaged in self-indulgence and they praised and celebrated arrogance. You have said, it is futile to serve God. What do we gain by carrying out his requirements and going about like mourners? But now we call the arrogant blessed. Certainly evildoers prosper. And even when they put God to the test, they get away with it. So clearly God's displeasure was justified. However, there's a common thread throughout all of these complaints. And we need to isolate it and we need to appreciate it. And that is this, that Israel's poor behavior was a poor witness to the world. See, that was the whole point. God had chosen a nation, created a nation that would be a light to the world. And yet they became indistinct. (laughs) They became the same as the world. There was no distinction. And secondly, but related, God's name was being defiled. God, who had created this people, was being dishonored by the world because of their poor behavior. We see this at the very beginning of Malachi. Malachi 1.11, God says, My name will be great among the nations, from where the sun rises to where it sets. In every place, incest and pure offerings will be brought to me because my name will be great among nations. And so God is displeased with Israel because Israel is an absolutely poor reflection of the holiness of God and that they were supposed to be his people. They were supposed to be unique. They were supposed to be a light. They were supposed to be people that showed people the way how to live under the authority of God. And so God, in silence, disassociates himself. Can we blame him? He disassociates himself. He creates distance between himself and his people, his adulterous people, for over 400 years. Please hear this. Always, always, always with God, there's hope. There's hope for those who will honor and obey him. And so even in this book that is so condemning and so challenging, even in this period of over 400 years, there was hope for anyone who would come and honor God and obey His law and and seek to be a person or a people that God had called them to be. And so even within Malachi, we see this hope. It says, Then those who feared the Lord talked with each other, and the Lord listened and heard. 
A scroll of remembrance was written in his presence concerning those who feared the Lord and honored his name. And on the day when I act, says the Lord Almighty, they'll be my treasured possession. I will spare them just as a father has compassion and spares his son who serves him. And you will see again, see the distinction between the righteous and the wicked, between those who serve God and those who don't. So these are the very last words of God before he goes silent for over 400 years. It's a long time. Over 400 years is a long time. They say that you will be forgotten. Every single one of you will be forgotten in a generation and a half. <laughs> so think about 400 years. These are God's last words. Surely the day is coming. It will burn like a furnace. All the arrogant and evildoer will be stubble. And the day that is coming will set them on fire, says the Lord Almighty. Not a root or a branch will be left to them. But for you who revere my name, the Son of Righteousness will rise with wings in its rays. And you will go out and frolic like well-fed calves. <laughs> Robert and Jeff could tell us, and Tony could tell us about what that looks like. They frolic like well-fed calves. Then you will trample on the wicked, and they will, eat, they will be ashes under the soles of your feet on the day when I act, says the Lord Almighty. Remember the ways of my servant Moses, the decrees and the laws I gave them at Horeb and for Israel. See, I will send the prophet Elijah to you before the great and dreadful day of the Lord. He will turn the hearts of the parents to their children and the hearts of the children to their parents, or else I will come and strike the land with total destruction. In Isaiah's prophecy, which we've read up this morning, in Isaiah's prophecy about the coming Messiah, he says these words, For Zion's sake, I will not keep silence. And so God breaks the silence. For Jerusalem's sake, I will not remain quiet till her vindication shines out like the dawn, her salvation like a blazing torch. The nations will see your vindication and all kings your glory. You will be called by a new name that the mouth of the Lord will bestow. You will be a crown of splendor in the Lord's hand, a royal diadem in the hand of your God. And so in Presenting the coming of Christ, the Messiah, Isaiah says, I will break, God will break his silence. And so we see that it is in the coming of Christ that God breaks his silence. Next week, we're going to take a look at those words that broke the silence. But for now, we need to get our bearing as a people living in the days of the second advent. Because, I don't know if you noticed, but there's an extremely ominous warning voiced by Malachi. Where do we stand in relation to what he says is the great and dreadful day of the Lord? What is that day? Romans 2. In Romans 2, Paul says this, 
But because of your stubbornness and your unrepentant heart, you are storing up wrath against yourself for the day of God's wrath, when his righteous judgment will be revealed. God will repay each person according to what they have done. To those who by persistence in doing good seek glory, honor, and immortality, he will give eternal life. But for those who are self-seeking and who reject the truth and follow evil, there will be wrath and anger. There will be trouble and distress for every human being who does evil, first for the Jew, then for the Gentile. But glory, honor, and peace for everyone who does good, first for the Jew and then for the Gentile. For God does not show favoritism. And so Malachi, when he's talking about the coming of the day of the Lord, that dreadful day of the Lord, even though he's, he, he wouldn't know this, he wouldn't be cognizant of this, he's talking about the second coming of Christ, the Christ's coming that we are anticipating and that we are longing for and that we are hoping for. And so let's just get our bearings. Let's just find out where we are in relation to Malachi's prophecy. He said those words of condemnation and yet of hope. He said those things 400 years before the coming of Christ and at the beginning of 400 years of silence. But that silence was broken by the coming of Jesus Christ. The advent that we're celebrating now. And unknowingly, he also foretold the second coming of Christ, that great and dreadful day when he will come to judge. We live in the time between the first and second coming of Christ. The coming of Christ in that first instance was to come and offer grace and salvation and hope with the understanding that there was a great dreadful day coming, a second advent. The second coming of Christ is that day of ultimate judgment. It behooves us to consider how different we are from the Israelites that Malachi spoke to. The Israelites that Malachi warned. The Israelites that Malachi told to return to God. How different are we than the Israelites who didn't honor God, who abandoned truth and followed false teaching, who assimilated with, with the pagan culture surrounding them, who disregarded the sanctity of marriage, who exploited the weak and the poor, who shortchanged God in their giving to God, who celebrated self-indulgence and arrogance. How different are we? Julie read this morning that Isaiah wrote of the first coming, the people living in darkness have seen a great light. I would suggest to you this morning that it is a dark time that we live in now. And that so much 
of God's complaint expressed through Malachi. I can relate to. And I struggle with. But we have to remember as those living in the period of the second advent, anticipating the great and dreadful day of the coming of the Lord, that Christ has come. And he has come with grace. He has come in mercy. He has come to prepare us for that day. And so as you listen to me this morning on Sunday, December 3rd, 2017, Malachi's warning is just as relevant as it was 2,500 years ago. And Malachi's encouragement still stands if you will only obey, if you will only honor, if you will only acknowledge God. And so I recognize that for some of you, this day and this talk and these words might come more as a curse than a blessing. For those of us who have accepted Jesus Christ, have accepted the grace of God, we look forward to the great and dreadful day of the Lord because we know that that is the day that we will spend eternity, the beginning of our eternity with Christ. But if you are one who has been disobedient, you are one who has been part of the darkness, contributed to the darkness, I would encourage you to seriously take to heart the words of Titus, who said, For the grace of God has appeared that offers salvation to all people. It teaches us to say no to ungodliness and worldly passions, and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in this present age, while we wait for the blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us, to redeem us from all wickedness and to purify for himself a people that, that are his very own, eager to do what is good. Let's pray. For us, Lord, to be honest, it's hard for us to sort of grasp your big picture. We struggle with that. But as we really try to be disciplined and, and see how you worked through time and through history, we're encouraged because we see in your grand scheme, in your big picture, this wonderful, wonderful grace. You were gracious to the people of Israel, even though they, like us, wandered off repeatedly, even though you miraculously and many times, in spectacular ways, saved them. 
we recognize that we're no different. <coughs> Lord, I just pray that you would help each one of us to take heed to the warning of Malachi. To seek out the darkness in ourselves. To allow your light to overcome that darkness. Lord, thank you for the first advent. For without it, there would not be the second. We thank you, Lord Jesus, as those who are living in this time of anticipation, that we get our house in order, and that we would be ready for that great and dreadful day of your coming. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.